0: Hello and welcome to the Canada's History Podcast. I'm your host, Kylie Nikolayson, and in this special episode I'll be speaking with a finalist of the 2020 Governor-General's History Award for Excellence in Community Programming. This award aims to inspire small or volunteer-led community organizations in the creation of innovative programming that commemorates unique aspects of our heritage. Encouraging both public engagement in Canadian history and unique community partnerships, these projects never fail to leave a lasting community impact. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. John Sandlos, a key figure in making the project he was part of, the Toxic Legacies Project, possible. So thank you for joining me today, John. Um, Perhaps you could start by introducing yourself and your role with the Toxic Legacies Project, and then tell us a little bit about the project and the communities involved.
1: Sure. Um, my My, my uh, position uh, right now is at Memorial University. I'm a professor of history, and the Toxic Legacies Project was funded through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council grant through the Government of Canada, and I was the primary or what we call the principal investigator on that grant. So in some senses, I was the project director. But the project was a broad partnership between several researchers at the university, including students and professors, and several communities in Yellowknife, including um, the, the settler community in Yellowknife, the city of Yellowknife, the community of Dilo, which is um, one of the Yellowknife's Dene First Nations communities that's directly adjacent to Yellowknife, and then on the other side of Yellowknife Bay, we worked with Deda, which is a second community within the Yellowknife Dene First Nation. And what we were trying to get at was the complicated, and tragic, and somewhat crazy legacy of gold mining within the Yellowknife region. There were there were lots of mines in the Yellowknife region, but there were two principally that had an enormous environmental impact, and these were the Con Mine, uh, which started in 1936. And the giant mine, which opened in 1948. And both of these mines engaged in a process of roasting their ore to get at the gold. And this had a, a toxic byproduct. Most of that toxic material, namely arsenic trioxide, came from the giant mine simply because 80% of its ore was uh, within what we call an arsenopyrite formation. So you have to roast that ore to get at the gold and you're always gonna get that byproduct, arsenic trioxide coming up a smokestack. Kahn, on the other hand, only had about 20% of its ore body within arsenopyrite formation. So it was less of a contributor to the, the arsenic problem. Nonetheless, beginning in 1949, there was a huge amount of arsenic trioxide pollution being emitted in the form of dust over Yellowknife, yellow um, knife up to 22,000 pounds per day uh, was being released into the local environment with absolutely no pollution control in those early years on either of the roasting facilities. Um, that pollution control equipment did come and it did take some of the arsenic trioxide out of the air. But nonetheless, over time, uh, you know, as you can imagine, ton after ton after ton of arsenic was released into the local environment. It was particularly dangerous in spring. It would accumulate all winter in the snow And then once spring runoff would come, it would get released into the local environment. And it was very dangerous for humans and animals living in the area. So um, there was, for example, a cattle farm in Yellowknife and all the cattle on that farm eventually died. That was the main dairy supply for Yellowknife. And people locally remember that in 1951 that, uh, that delivery service ended much much more tragically, uh, a child, a two-year-old child in the Yellowknives Dene community uh, on Latham Island, which is now Delo, uh, died in 1951 in April, again, during the spring runoff period when it was very dangerous to drink snow water. Um, and so this became a crisis, and uh, government felt like they had to act and they demanded that the mines put pollution control equipment on their smokestacks. So Khan had a particular, what we call a wet method of collecting the arsenic. And they would, they would impound that, the contaminated water that would result from that process in tailings ponds. And that led to its own set of problems, uh, but that eventually was cleaned up uh, in the 2000s through a remediation program. The big problem at Giant Mine was the fact that they decided to use what's called an electrostatic precipitator, which would basically use electrical current to knock arsenic particles out of the air. Uh, And then eventually in 1959, they added a bag house to that, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a bag that catches arsenic dust. And so they were collecting arsenic dust and, and the government was very worried. They did not want that arsenic stored on the surface of the mine Nobody really knew what to do with it. They talked about taking it out into the middle of the tundra and maybe creating some kind of disposal site there. But ultimately, what was decided, what was thought to be the safest thing for the local population in terms of, of mitigating water pollution, was to store it underground. So day after day, month after month, year after year, uh ton after ton of arsenic uh, trioxide is being loaded under the ground. That did indeed in the immediate term protect the local population from water pollution, but it created a toxic legacy of 237,000 tons of arsenic being stored under the ground. The thinking at the time was that permafrost would reestablish itself. This was wishful thinking because there's not really a lot of good evidence that there was continuous permafrost in the Yellowknife. Uh, area underneath that mine. But certainly as you mine, you release heat, that's going to melt any permafrost that's there. And the problem is, is that mines, most underground mines, there's a lot of water pumping that goes on to keep the water table below the level of the mine. So if, for example, today, the water pumps were turned off, water would come up and would essentially flood those arsenic chambers. So what we were trying to do, all of that is a way of giving you a background to the project. The the essential problems that we were looking at as part of the project is that we wanted to work with community members on four priorities that they identified. The Yellowknives Dene were particularly keen to have some good historical work written about the mine. They have done their own historical work, a lot of it through oral history, but they also wanted people to go through the archives uh, and detail the impacts of arsenic poisoning on their community. Um, the second thing that the Illinois the study wanted done was they wanted mapping uh, of the the impacts of arsenic. So we had a student work with elders to talk about places where they no longer go to collect berries, to fish, to drink water, to hunt, and so on. And, and that study gave, again, An indication of the broad impacts of arsenic on that community. The third thing that we did was we worked with a local filmmaker and a a film company, Shiba Films, to create the film Guardians of Eternity, which you can see for free. It's a 45-minute documentary about the 237,000 tons of arsenic under the ground. uh, It's directed by France Benoit, with the help of Kelly Saxberg and Ron Harpel. It's, it's an amazing documentary, and you can look at it at guardiansofeternity.ca. Um, and uh, it, it ta- talked about the history of giant mine, but also the the legacy of the arsenic underground, and also the problem of how you would communicate the danger of that arsenic to future generations. So at one point, the, uh, the Canadian government was talking about freezing that material underground in perpetuity forever and and having uh, people pump water at that site forever and maintain um, the the um, the means by which they keep those areas frozen through what we call thermo siphon technology it's passive heat exchange um, it doesn't require a lot of maintenance but it does um, it does uh, it does require some replacement of the pipes over years and, and, and over time, and that would create a perpetual care scenario where the government would have to care for that site forever. So that was the, that led to the fourth pillar of the project. The film sort of highlighted that problem, and we decided to work with local people to um, to imagine ways that we could communicate with future generations about that hazard. Now, during the project, the, the government decided through an environmental assessment process to change the uh, length of the project uh, to a hundred year time frame. And they're going to try to research ways that they can remove that arsenic from underground safely. Right now, if you were to tr- try to move it using existing technology, it would put the local community at risk from airborne arsenic leaks, um, possibly leaks into, the, into local uh, waterways and so on there's not really a safe way to do that the government's researching how to do that and there's a hundred year time frame frame to find that solution but even in a hundred years there's all kinds of evidence where human beings have forgotten about toxic sites or where uh, a project budget falls apart and and people don't maintain the maintain the site and so on so we work with people in the city of Yellowknife with local elders um, and with the uh, Yeized Denny community at large to imagine ways that we could communicate with future generations about the hazard at, at giant one.
0: I think not only the layers or the pillars of this project you're describing is fascinating, but I think the, the interdisciplinarity that you're incorporating with history, all of this, science and this connecting and really getting at these core issues that we want the future generations to understand. I think that's, that's really excellent. Um, how did the idea for this project originally come about?
1: Yeah, that was, it was almost um, fortuitous. Um, I actually had a previous uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council grant just to do kind of straight-ahead archival work on mining in the Northwest Territories. And that meant going to the Prince of Wales Northern Heritage Centre, the Northwest Territories Archives. That started in about 2007, and just started to, you know, started to meet people locally, um, people, activists like Kevin O'Reilly, who had worked on the giant mine issue for a couple of decades, um, met some people within the Illinois nice Denny community, like Mary Rose Sunberg, who's a, a leader in terms of preserving local languages and culture. And there seems to be this convergence of issues. We ended up at dinner at Kevin O'Reilly's place, and France Benoit, the film director, was there. And, you know, I, I, I sort of talked about how we were finding out all kinds of interesting things about Giant Mine in the archives, as well as some of the other mines we were researching. And this idea came up of why don't we do a community project that's centered around these ideas of the film, the mapping study, some more historical work. And, you know, I remember Kevin saying, I think more work needs to be do- done on this issue of communicating with future generations. So we applied to a partnership, the Shirt Partnership Development Program, and we we got our funding in 2013 and the, and the project ran for about five years. Um, before we wrapped up.
0: I think it's just very interesting to hear about. Clearly there's a lot of voices, histories, plural, involved here. Uh, How does your project recognize these important voices in history?
1: I I think the most important voices that we help to recognize, although I I don't want to take anything away from the community, because I think they have developed their own voice and they've, they've they've produced some of their own histories about their experiences with, with, mining in the Yellowknife region, but I think the Yellowknife Dene, um, we, we were told, for example, that many people in the settler community d- didn't believe the Yellowknife Dene when they said that their community had been sickened and that that at least one child, they believe more children died during that period of intense ar- arsenic poisoning in, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Um, so we were able to, um, although, you know, uh, Oral history tends to be as reliable as archival history. We were able to provide the archival coll- collaboration for what the noise Dene had been saying all along. Um, I think the other thing that we did was we worked with uh, everybody in the community to produce some fantastic online reports that are freely available at our our Toxic Legacies website um, about, you know, again how how we can send messages to the future about this site. And one of the things that came through loud and clear from the, the Elmanized Denny elders is they want any commemoration at the giant mine site to tell the story of what happened there, of the environmental injustice that was inflicted on their community. Um, and and they're, they're very keen to have that history commemorated. So we realized very quickly that not only were we engaging in a project of practical communication with the future, but we were also engaging in ideas about how to tell the story of this mine, how to make sure its legacy is recognized. And then also, I think, you know, from the, the perspective of the settler community, it's important to recognize that many people lived, worked and died a giant mine uh, in mining accidents and uh, during the tragic strike of, in, the, in the early 1990s. Um, so it was important to recognize some of the labor history as well uh, at the site. And there were some discussions about how to do that. Now, we, we didn't have the funding to put those ideas into practice, but we're hoping the work that we did will provide a, a, a sort of a foundation for the community as they move forward and obtain funding through government and so on to, to try to uh, create some sort of commemorative uh, site at the mine that would both serve uh, to tell the history of the site but also practically ensure that the knowledge of how to care for that site persists over time so that there is no breakdown in the in the in the care of uh, the toxic legacy at that site so i think i think we did a lot to um, bring people together from the various constituents within the lni ferry the constituent communities And we, um, I I think we revived a a little bit of the hidden history of that mine, because I think in popular lore around Yellowknife, gold mining, the history of it just tended to be uh, celebrated uh, uncritically. But now I think people, through our film and through some of our writing, they understand that it's a mixed legacy.
0: Wow, yeah just talking about communicating with these future generations and the extent to which that the toxic legacies project has really documented a storytelling journey across time but that hasn't stopped moving it keeps going into the future um what do you really think the lasting impact of this project will be both broadly speaking and really specifically to these communities involved
1: yeah I, i think to the first point broadly speaking I think um, the project in a a broad sense is giant mine is such a good example um, of how uh, any almost any type of mining you undertake when you you break apart rock, when you crush it, when you grind it, um, you're going to release potentially all kinds of toxic material into the environment, whether through the water or through the air, if you're putting that, ore through a, a smelting process, there are all kinds of heavy metals in 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 rock um, that are toxic to life. Right? You know everything from mercury, arsenic, uh, uh, you know, and even even minerals that are good for us, like copper and zinc, in small quantities can be toxic to us in large quantities. So we're writing a book about giant right now. Uh, Arne Keeling, my colleague in the geography department. Uh, and I are working on this, we we were tentatively titling it Pandora's Mine because the idea you open up the lid and all this evil comes out. And in a broad sense, I think we hope that our work is instructive about the costs of it, of um, industrial development and the kinds of long-term hazards that mining sites can leave behind. Uh, Giant Mine is only one of, of thousands of sites around the world. Where there's toxic material that's being contained, whether that's in ponds, some some form of water, or whether it's buried under the ground. And quite frankly, people don't know what to do with this stuff. And it's it's really something that accelerated in the 20th century as, as development and consumption and technology all accelerated, so too did the number of these toxic sites. So I think that's the broad, that's the broad lesson from Giant Mind, the specific lesson or the specific legacy we hope that this project leaves, as I hinted at before, is a a practical way for the community uh, to fulfill its debt to future generations. I think though the community itself didn't steer the course of Giant Mine and and didn't make a lot of the poor decisions that were made along the way, I think they, they feel that they owe a debt to their children, their grandchildren and so on to make sure that this site is commemorated in a way um, that there that nothing horrible happens along the way. If that arsenic were ever to be mobilized within water, it would go out into Great Slave Lake and and it could be a massive uh, toxic disaster. And I think everybody wants to make sure that there is the continuity of knowledge about that mine over time um, to make sure that that disaster doesn't happen. Enough. And we hope that our project kick-started that discussion about how to do that and um, so in a lots of ways we're, we're uh, very proud of the work that we did and, and I think it was timely, it was valuable and it got people thinking you know for me and I think everybody else that participated got us thinking about the deep time issues that we often in our daily lives just lose hold of. How, what will the impact of our actions today be 100 1000 10,000 years from now we looked at a lot of literature from about how how governments and other officials are are considering these issues in light of nuclear waste sites and how they're how they they might communicate with future generations of various nuclear sites around the world particularly one in Carlsbad New Mexico that we looked at and literally i i stayed awake at night trying to think about wow these these legacies that we're leaving today these toxic legacies will have ripple effects through time and it's important to think about how how do we let future generations know about how to how to deal with these sites so hopefully in, in a way it was a, a small community project but we dealt with a lot of big ideas so i think that that was very important